Hi, this is James Michael Brody, and this is Black and Gold. Think of these podcasts as a home away from home, um, a homecoming, if you will, as we share the accounts of African Americans who studied, taught, and worked on the University of Colorado's Boulder campus. And we have stories to tell, my friends. Stories of joys and sorrows, defeats and victories, (sighs) lessons learned, lives lived, our collective memories. You see, this is about way more than the time we all spent on a particular piece of real estate. Rather, these in-depth conversations will be the basis for the upcoming book, The Black and Gold Project. So kick back check it out, listen to these celebrations of life, and I hope that what you hear will spark some memories for you too, memories that you might one day share, because my friends, we are all black and golden. I was first introduced to Gwendolyn Robicki, who uses the pronouns they, them, in 2018. Fast forward to 2021, as I sat down to interview the youngest, to date, member of the CU Black and Gold alumni, just days after they graduated. The McNair Scholar graduated magna cum laude with a BA in Distributive Studies a stealth-structured major called New Age Existentialism. They successfully defended their thesis, which is a combination of astrophysics, neuroscience, and philosophy. The Colorado Springs native is a demonstration of what it means to create one's own space. As a black, multiracial, gender nonconforming poet, artist, and scholar, Gwendolyn questions why anyone should want to sit at a table where they are on the menu, particularly when they can make their own table. Thus, their focus has been on designing independent spaces for Black and Indigenous people of color, otherwise known as BIPOC. In 2020, Gwendolyn and graduate student Alejandra Abad created a form of protest called Artivism an art installation located outside Norland Library. It included 43 life-sized black cardboard silhouettes placed on different chairs and benches. Each featured a slur or insult hurled at BIPOC students by classmates and professors on the Boulder campus. Gwendolyn is the founder of Building Leadership Among Communities of Color, or Black a student-led program that aims to recruit and support students in challenging systemic anti-blackness, celebrating black joy and resilience in art, and learning about the movements of people in the African diaspora. They also founded the Racial BIPOC Woman X FEMS Collective and took part in a CU Scholar Strike webinar on anti-black racism on campus. They also have experience abroad, 
serving as a youth ambassador of the United States in participation with the Congress Bundestag Youth Exchange Program in Germany, and spending a semester conducting research in Colombia. Gwendolyn writes and performs their original poetry and has their first book, a collection of poems titled A Bruxist Manifesto, set to be published by Really Serious Literature later in 2021. Welcome our newest alum, Gwendolyn Robicki. You're the youngest person I have interviewed thus far. Fun, fun. Congratulations on graduating this year. You make all of us old folks very proud. We, we tend to revel in our victories as much as we lament our defeats. So you, you, that is a wonderful victory, and we are so proud. And also congratulations on the book. And I know we'll talk about both of those later, but just, I wanted to start by just saying that. And just Well done, my friend. Thank you. Thank you. It took some time. I ended up taking the victory lap. I took a fifth year. But, yeah, I'm really glad I did because if I hadn't taken a fifth year, I wouldn't have been able to study and research in Colombia. I don't think I would have had time for my thesis. So, I don't know. Sometimes you just got to gotta chill and it's fine. <laughs> so let's start with this. Tell me a little bit about you. Tell me about your parents, your grandparents, where you grew up. Tell me about the people who made you you. So I am from Colorado Springs, and I know every time you say that in Colorado, there's this weird collective gasp. Um, <laughs> but I'm from Colorado Springs, and mm -hmm. I'm from a multiracial family. So my mom's family are, are Freedmen, so they're Mississippi Choctaw. A lot of them live in Broken Bow, Oklahoma. And then I want to say like the other half of them on her father's side live in Sacramento. My dad's family, you know, they're white. They're from Lamar, Colorado. They're, they're from the country. My parents met at UNC. Up in Greeley. Yeah, UNC in Greeley. And so that's where my parents met. They've been together for something like 27 years because they met as students and then they just stayed together and had four children. <laughs> so I'm one of four. I'm the second oldest. I grew up for the most part in Colorado, in Colorado Springs. I mean, I think people really... Again, there's always like gasps. They're like, oh, Colorado Springs is super conservative. And it's like, yeah, there's the military bases, a lot of retirees. But Colorado Springs is a very interesting mix of political ideologies. You have some of the OG hippies who then got rich and made Manitou. <laughs> but you have this really weird mix of people with money, tremendous amounts of money. So people who can afford luxurious mountain homes versus those who can afford these large acreage ranches out in the outskirts. And then you have just regular people. You have regular folk. And I think people also don't realize that Colorado Springs is almost half a million people. And when I was growing up, it was around, it was probably only at 300,000, something like that. But mm -hmm. it's, it's, a, it's a lot more diverse than Boulder. <laughs> I'll give you that. <laughs> they have these pockets of diversity that you probably won't see in other parts of Colorado, so like Fountain, which isn't technically Colorado Springs, but it's very much part of that area. Mm -hmm. That's where I used to run track and field. I had a lot of black and brown people. And so even growing up, I never felt like I was the only one. I was often in predominantly white spaces because even in schools, what happens with AP courses, what happens with gifted and talented is that it's magically a white space, even if it is a predominantly black and brown school. But I never felt like I was the only one. And I think a lot of that had to do with the fact that I am from a larger household, so I have three siblings. <laughs> so I was like, okay, mm -hmm. there's clearly more than one of me. And also the fact that 
I don't know, my parents are very strategic about like, oh, okay, we see another multiracial kid, we see another black or brown kid, like, you're going to go be friends with them. <laughs> go be friends with them. It never felt like I was the only one. I was really grateful for that. And then especially in high school, uh, in my German class, a lot of the the queer black and brown kids, we all took German together. Mm-hmm. And the teacher was really supportive. It was a really nice space. And then even when I was in robotics for a really long time as a kid, there were a lot of black and brown t- people in our team initially. So, yeah, I don't know. Like, I love to talk shit about Colorado Springs. I think it's fine to do so. But no one from Boulder can talk shit about Colorado Springs. Absolutely not. As a, as a proud graduate of Mitchell High School, I'm right there with you, my friend. I think we've definitely talked about this. I'm like, yeah, this, like people have stuff to say about the Springs. Is it the most diverse place? No. But is it Boulder? Also no. You know, what, what you're telling me is some of the same things I've been hearing for years. The Springs is a unique animal. Is that a good way to put it? It's honestly the epitome of America. You have these far, far lefties, but then also a mix of people who are, what is it, fiscally conservative, socially liberal, and you have that mix. And then you have well, something for the family. You have these far-right groups, and they're just constantly out for each other. How aware were you of, of things going on in the Springs and also in the larger country? Were those, were those things that your, your family talked about? Were those things you experienced? Oh, Absolutely. I mean, so it's also, you really can't shield black and brown kids from reality. Like, most of the time you can't. And it's not just that I am a black and brown kid, but I am from a multiracial family. And I feel like people now think that that's a normal thing. And I mean, it is way more normal than the 80s or something like that. But the fact of the matter is my parents got together in the mid-90s. And that's when there were still people on talk shows like, oh, my gosh, would you date? a black person. And and it's it's just like my parents are very aware that they were like, hey, you know, this might happen to you. Like, remember this, this is, this might happen. So I was very aware growing up. Uh, You came up in the era, you know, we had, I guess, Bill Clinton scandals and and you had the Bush years and you you go through having uh, the first African-American president. There was a lot of, at least on the surface, a a lot of change socially. How did you view it from your vantage point? Even though I grew up in the Springs most of my life, I actually, so my parents moved to Georgia for a really, like, brief blurb. For, like, a year and a half, maybe two years, we were in Georgia. And this was, mm-hmm. I think, halfway through third grade, all of fourth grade. And then, yeah. And so I remember going to a place where it was, extre- like, it was Georgia. There were people who mm-hmm. had come from Vietnam. There were people who were, were Bangladeshi in my school, as well as, you know, black students, white students. And so that like, was that as, like, a punctuation mark and confirmed a lot of things that I'd always known, is that, okay, there are, of course, people like me. There are spaces that I can thrive in. But if you've been to Georgia, it's still a mess. It doesn't matter. Like, this racism is systemic. After being in Georgia for that time, like, this weird period of my life, I go back to Colorado Springs. I go to a different school than the one I moved from. And I remember in Georgia, that's when Obama was being elected. I was in fourth grade, I think. So like fourth grade, fifth grade, that's when he was campaigning. That's when everyone was seeing him. And I remember people were like, he's the first black president. And me, because, you know, like there, like there is this thing in being, I think people have been calling it ambiguously black or being multiracial. Where I was like, yeah, he's the first black president. He's also multiracial, though. It was a vindicating moment. And there's a reason people in the black community, there's a reason that, I don't know, a lot of multiracial folks, I'd like to think Kim Peel especially, like, there was this this moment of, like, we are hyper, we are visible in a way 
where we're not the Jezebel, the Mammy, and or just in some shitty basketball movie. And it was mm-hmm. like Obama as a president, when you break him down and look at him truly and really as an adult, there's a lot to be said. And there's a lot of heartbreak. But as a kid, as, like, as a nation who's having a racial reckoning, I was super excited when I was little. My family is, is mixed. My mother is part Native American. But we didn't live that life. You lived a life of trying to reconcile different aspects of culture. How did you come into being you, you know, through the, what sometimes may seem as contradictions and, and, and things that maybe that on the surface should not fit, but they fit. How, how did that work? I think people want you to be confused in this country. If you're a black and brown person, especially someone mm-hmm. who has um, mixed origins, and especially someone who's black, who's black, they really want you to be confused. They want you to be disoriented because that limits mm-hmm. your movement. And again, like I was raised by parents who were very aware of this. And my parents were super, like, mm-hmm. when I look back, my parents mm-hmm. were very young. They were, my mom was still in her late 20s with four, by the time she had her four children. But she had navigated, so again, like her family's um, mixed Native American, all of them, to different degrees. Some people are right off the res and some people, you know, you wouldn't be able to tell, quote, quote. But she had to navigate that, and she had to navigate that as the darker sister. And so having a family where you can see the, the mixed origin and then being the one who people, who people can't because they can't process that blackness is multifaceted, can host multiple identities. And having to deal with that, like she made it very clear, you are all of these things, and you're just going to have to fight with it. That doesn't mean you don't grow and you don't learn more about yourself, but never be confused about yourself. Never fall into the trap of confusion because that's what, that's what America is best at. That's what the world is best at is trying to undermine and pick apart people and say, oh, well, you know, you can't be this, you can't do that. And that's just detrimental to learning the self. I think we can be critical of ourselves. And, of course, I've like gone through periods where I'm like, I, I don't know if I'm sure, but that's the trap of surety. That's the trap of confusion. And, I mean, especially black and brown identity, especially being black in America. What am I going to do? Am I going to have white people dictate something to me? Absolutely not. Am I going to, like, even other black people, I'm like, you know, we look a lot of different ways. Blackness is it's a multidimensional existence with different privileges, different disadvantages, and we have to be real about that. So, I don't know, I've said that I've been an old man since I was 12, and I think that's accurate. <laughs> I've been very much this way for a very long time. Your approach to some of the same issues we dealt with 40-some-odd years ago is very unique, and it shows an evolution that is really kind of fascinating. But I want to hold that question until we get to, to Boulder. Let me ask you this, why Boulder? Did you have other options? What were you thinking? What, what were, when it came down to making the choice of college, why see you? So my older sibling, so I'm the second of four children. And my older sibling was already here. I had been on, like, the wait list for, wait list for UChicago. I only applied to, like, two other schools, and they were Ivies, and I didn't get in. I was scandalized. And I was coming out of a year where, like, when we talk about discovery and, like, blackness and identity, it changes wherever you are, or it's relative to spaces. And so I had gotten a scholarship to study in Germany for a year, and I had been working since I was in middle school to secure that because I really wanted to go. I was like, oh, yeah, I'm going to go to Germany. I'm going to know German, and I'm going to be a theoretical physicist. Like This was my, my thinking when I was younger. And so after working to achieve that goal and being in this – because when we get to, like, why Boulder, like, what do you feel of Boulder – after being in Germany, I'm like, Boulder feels like Germany. Boulder mm. feels 
very like this faux liberalism where there's still a lot of bleeding hearts, a lot of white people who are like, I'm down for the struggle, but there's still blackface. There's still all of these like offenses. There's still these really real tensions that people neglect to deal with. So when I was even in Germany on this scholarship program, I was one of, you know, like a handful of black and brown kids. We all knew each other. We were in this program together. It was, I want to say, maybe five or seven out of 50 of the people mm-hmm. were black or brown. So I still talked to a couple of them. But it was mm-hmm. us in Germany during the migrant crisis when there were these pictures in newspapers of black and brown people just showing up on the, on the shores of the Mediterranean alive and dead. And I remember those very visible tensions between my way of thinking and my host family who were white. Um, and named the Schmitz, which is like the Smiths of German, the Schmitz. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it was me coming and just like, you know what? It might be nice to be close enough to home. My my older siblings here, and I like I had no I knew Boulder was white, and I'm like I'm coming from a white country. I'm coming from a place like my last year of high school. I'm coming from tension, like real like tension. And I know there's real tension in Boulder. Mm-hmm. Don't get me wrong. But that was where they were firebombing refugees. There were people like shouting at women in hijabs and burqas. And I was like, you know, I can, if I can deal with this shit, and I'm 17 years old in a country with a different language, I can deal with Boulder. And I mean, to varying degrees, I was right. But I'm just like, you know, let's do it. It's a good school. has a lot of research funding. Let's do it. So that's ultimately how I came there. I was like, you know what? It's fine. It's fine. Mm-hmm. My siblings here. Talk about your first day as a student. I'm, I'm sure you probably visited um, your sibling when, 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 uh, when she was there. When, as a student, what was your first day like? Oh, I barely remember it. So I had mm. also like a housing crisis when I got here because I was supposed to room with my older sister in Bear Creek, but you know I'm non-binary. I use I use they them pronouns, and they just wouldn't put me in her room. They're like, you can't be in a girl's room. I was like, okay, wish you had told me this before, after I've been waiting for paperwork for months overseas. And so I actually didn't have a dorm assignment until later. And I remember I was still like crashing with my sister. So I didn't have a dorm, but I was crashing with her. And so my first two weeks on campus, first two or three weeks, I was just sitting outside waiting for her to like come pick me up and take me to sit in her dorm. So I just... I honestly was like going to class and just sitting in Northern Commons. And I think that's actually, because like, I don't remember the specific first day. I just remember like the first week where I was meeting different people. And I think I went to International Coffee Hour for the first time. It was pleasant enough. And I'm from Colorado Springs. I, t- I tune out white noise very easily. I was like, oh, look, there's still brown people here. I see a couple. And I'm going to get to something. And then I want to ask you this question. Because one of the things I noticed um, that a lot of what I see, and I, I'm following some of the things that have happened there with the, the lady yelling at the young men in the engineering school, uh, the stuff written in the snow on one of the cars, you know, some of the, I, I, the, the protests from last year, that a lot of the incidents were the same, but your approach has been very different. Where 40 years ago, we were trying to figure out a way to fit into someone else's space. You're really looking to create your own space. And could you talk a little about that difference and how that evolves? Because it's, it's, it's a very subtle, but very distinctive difference in what we were doing um, you know, almost a half century ago. 
Again, I think it goes to assimilation versus a celebration of difference, a celebration and the right to exist as different people. There is a reason people are afraid to be different, and that is ostracization. That's because you're an easy target if you're different, or at least that's how people have made difference specifically raised. And difference isn't a dirty word. It's fine. I think people should be allowed to be whatever they perceive as black, because, of course, blackness isn't monolithic either. I think it just doesn't make sense. We know that it's, it's not the way to go to try to be palatable to people who would gladly see you off of campus, who would do anything in their power to remove you from classrooms because for some reason they see you as inferior. And that's what, these, that's what a lot of these racist white people think. And so what are we going to do? We're going to appeal to people who would wish us away or are we going to make space? Because that's ultimately what you have to do. And of course, in making space, people will always feel some kind of way. But women weren't allowed in universities until very recently. I, I think people forget that within the, the lifetime of our grandmothers and like my great-grandmother, these were not things that women did. And of course, when you add the layer of black women, like unheard of. And so what are you going to do? You're going to wait for someone to say you can be somewhere? That's scandalous. That's, that's not going to get you anywhere. It's the famous saying of appealing to the oppressor will get you nowhere. So why appeal to them? You're never going to. You're never going to be, you're never just, you're never going to be them. And I think it takes people a long time to realize that because, again, very few black people, so there's not a lot of black people for you to, you know, band together with and make that community and actually fight so you're not just a lone target. But there's also, again, this fear of difference, that difference is a bad thing when it's not. So I think that's what people are starting to come into is that it's, we have distinct needs as black and brown people, and those needs aren't going to be met if we're appealing to whiteness. So I think that's where that's coming from. I think you said in an, in an interview something about why well, I don't want to sit at a table where I'm on the menu. And oh, yeah. And it's the idea of not, why, why do I want to sit at your table when I can create my own table? It's funny. It's, one of my favorite papers, so I wrote this like fun little paper, a fun little philosophy paper I submitted to a bunch of conferences. <laughs> it, was, it was why seat at the table politics are anti-liberatory. And it was based on this little poem I wrote where I was like, why would I want to sit at the table where they carve up my own kin? Because that's what the image of the table is. It's who are you allowed to oppress? What lands can I give you? What bodies, what resources can I take from others and carve up and serve here? And so the table is always going to be anti-liberatory, the idea that you need to be with the oppressors, that you need to be the one oppressed person who's mm -hmm. hip enough to sit with these people. No, you don't leave the table as an analogy, a metaphor for whatever power distribution. I love that people are like, no, we don't need the table at all. Everybody eats. You can eat anywhere. We'll make all the chairs, all the stools. We can sit in a circle, and we don't need the, the limitations of a table. Talk about the, the marriage of astrophysics, neuroscience, and philosophy, and why those three academic pursuits became essential to, to, to you. I just wanted to do whatever I wanted. So I ended up marrying them through existentialism and the individual. So like, who are we as individuals on this very intimate internal scale of neuroscience, of trying to process the mind as a physical and, of course, like the psychological thing. And then, of course, who are we as individuals on this massive scale of trying to understand ourselves in time, trying to place ourselves 
and these massive happenings and our minuscule existence in comparison and just really juggling these two senses of self, the one that's on this large scale, on this short scale, and of course philosophy is this intermediary, this one holding the discussion, being the mediator between these. Honest, I just want to do whatever I wanted. <laughs> but I mean, I love space. I love astrophysics. I think it's a field that there's so much pop science about. I think people are really interested in black holes and time. But just to even dip your toes a little bit further into the true wonder of studying the universe, I think it was something I knew I had to do. And I started off as an astrophysics major, and then I added philosophy very quickly. And then at that point, like, I think halfway through my sophomore year, I was like, you know, I hate math, it's terrible, and also I want to I want to know more about the brain. And of course, the reason why I was so interested in the brain and psychology and neuroscience was actually for trauma. And so I wrote um, some side projects on trauma and the effect of the collective, on the collective mind of this collective trauma, of things like genocide, of continued oppression. And I think there's a lot of work coming out in neuroscience about things like learned helplessness, but as applied to human models, not just, you know, suspending a rat by its tail and watching it struggle, but rather what that does to people, to be suspended mm-hmm. by poverty, by systemic oppression, and then learning to be helpless in the terms that I can't even struggle anymore. So I, I think they all fit really nicely with just my interests, who I am as a person. Yeah, I just love it. I love it. You know, last year was it was an odd year, no matter how how, how you look at it. How did some of the issues come to the fore in such a way, at least from your perspective? Because, you know, George Floyd triggered a lot, but there was always a lot brewing under the surface. So how did all of that come together in terms of what you were seeing, in in terms of the the kind of activism you were involved in? So there is a part of me that I'm still deeply frustrated by everything after George Floyd. Mm -hmm. A lot of so some of the groups I had already been working on, like Radical BIPOC Women and Femmes, that was a year in the making. And then building mm-hmm. leadership among communities of color, like the Black Summer Program, which is we're doing it, we have it, we're gonna have it this summer for the first time. Hey, hey. That was something I've been working on for easily two years at that point. And so just to watch Black Death become a music festival, that's what it felt like. It didn't feel like anyone had learned anything. And looking around now, I'm like, y'all didn't learn shit. And even other black people who, I'm trying, I'm try- I start a lot of fights. We might get into this a little bit. But, like, I start a lot of fights because there were other black people who I remember when I, very briefly, the BSA, I got kicked out of BSA. That's another story. But I remember I was saying things, and someone was like, you're alienating our white allies. You need to make this space safe for white allies. I'm like, this is a black fucking space. And then to watch these people react to George Floyd, I'm like, well, you, you were never in the game. I don't understand why now you are finally processing that this has all been a shock and a show for some people. And I, and I think it shows again after the, the aftermath of George Floyd, that people are like, oh, okay, like the, the music festival's over, Black Death, still hashtag trendy, let me put this black square. And I just found it so deeply frustrating because I think it didn't empower black people. A lot of black people, I think, like there was this one blip where it's like, oh, yes, you, under, you see this. And people were having Black Lives Matter rallies across the globe. And this is also something I used to bring up a lot. I was like, you know, blackness is this thing that is across the world. You can't use black to exclusively mean African. That's not how blackness works. Mm-hmm. And so they, like, people were starting to get it. They were like, oh, yeah, this is an issue everywhere. And then, of course, it got quiet because it's hard. When you're talking about anti-blackness 
And so again, like even the alienation of white allies. I'm a white dad. I'm like, I don't give a shit if I alienate this man. Are you kidding? He needs to grow up and learn. It doesn't, that's, you can't just be here for the parade. I need you here when the cops show up. I need you here when ICE show up. And the way that people just wanted to keep it super clean and like, oh, this is a clear unju- injustice, like, yes, but all of this is. All of this is such a crystal clear injustice when you realize that you cannot hold and wield the privilege you do and the world that you say you want to create. Because if you really want to defund the police, if you really want to have this world where anti-blackness is challenged, dismantled, and we can be on this equal footing, you have to give some shit up. And that includes like light-skinned multiracial people like me. That includes light-skinned black folks. That includes black folks with money. That includes black folks coming from situations where they were oppressing other black folks. Like you can't just say, like I don't know, for all of the pageantry of white people and non-black mm-hmm. people, there were some conversations that were lacking in the black community that was it was just frustrating. And I mean, even now with Kamir Rice's mother calling out these activists who, and I'm just using air quotes, but these activists who are making money off of black deaths and the pageantry, we need these fucking conversations because it's just going to keep happening, that it's it's the shock and awe, it's the parade, and never people like, no, we're going to hunker down and make this community no matter what because that's what needs to be done. And I know some people are, but you're never going to get roses for doing the work that needs to be done. You very rarely get your roses, and I, I hope people appreciate that. So I don't know. I, th- I found it very frustrating. Like, it was great because then white people gave me money for these projects. Because <laughs> um, black was supposed to happen the COVID summer, and we had gotten, like, $14,000 confirmed in funding, and it just got wiped away. And so, you know, George Floyd happened. Everyone felt bad. Magically, people realized what was happening for forever. And then they were like, you want some money to actually do things that matter? And I was like, yes, thank you. They <laughs> said, you've been working on for two years? Yes, thank you. Yeah, there's a sense of, um, you know, questions come across my mind lately. You know, we all agree we want to end racism, but when it, but I don't think people are comfortable with what that actually means and what that actually looks like. You know, it's more than just statues coming down. It's, it's more than just one officer going to prison. There's a whole lot more to it than that. And you're right. I think a lot of us are reluctant to really look at what it means to break down something that quite frankly was made up to begin with. How do you get folks all across the spectrum to get comfortable with dismantling something that really was never real to begin with? As a philosopher, (laughs) when people say it wasn't real, it wasn't real, that's just actually playing into the palms of people who utilize whiteness, utilize patriarchy too. Because again, it's never as simple as, oh yes, we're just talking about whiteness now. No, it's patriarchy. It's mm-hmm. gender and all of these things. It's classism. All of it is rolled into this. And mm-hmm. so I always bring it up because it's, it's not that it's not. It's now that it's real. It's become real because it's a construction. I bring up this metaphor of a statue in one of my, in one of my papers. I'm like, can you call a statue stone? Like, it's made of stone, but it's still a statue. There's still the symbolism there. And even after you topple it, people will not say, oh, look at that stone there, unless, after, unless it's been some time, some real time. They're going to say, oh, but like that's where the statue fell, and it fell into pieces again. It's not stone again. You take a stone, you take that nothing, and you construct it, you manipulate it. It has that, like, that imagery in it now. And it's just going to, like, it's not just going to be the toppling of it. It's going to be the time and the dismantling. And truly, the return to stone might not happen in our lifetime. And I think of the return to the, non, to the non-racial whatever. But I don't know. I think, 
I think people need to be more careful because mm-hmm. that's because I mean even again bringing it into black community I feel like there's so many conversations to be had within black community to strengthen mm-hmm. us to fight and it's just like people are are hesitant I remember bringing up colorism in a lot of black spaces and brown spaces and they're like I don't know why you're obsessed with this and blah 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 I'm mm-hmm. like it's because this is also one of the tendrils of white supremacy you can't mm-hmm. you can't look at Malcolm Martin Rosa Toni Morrison all of these people, all of these people, they're like, these are revolutionaries, amazing. It's like, yes, like, Angela, like, yes. But don't we see a pattern where all of these people are palatable to whiteness in some way, that they can appeal because of eloquence, because of these things that we've coded as white, because of the fact that they are lighter individuals. You don't see a lot of people out here looking like Gwendolyn Brooks. You don't. And it's just, why can't we talk about this as a black community? What are we afraid of? Because I make the joke all the time, yeah, I'm a, I'm a light-skinned bitch. I'm beige. I know it. But that's important. And I think some people are getting more vocal and critical, and other people are pushing back so much because they take it as an affront to their own blackness. And it's like, no. If we're going to talk about blackness and white supremacy and survival, you have to talk about the ways in which you have been afforded an easier survival. It doesn't mean you're not black. doesn't mean that you're not still in the struggle but it means that you understand the reality of how we've been pitted against each other and that it's not as simple as saying, well, it's not real anyway, or you're just bitter. It's like, no, you know that darker-skinned people, especially darker-skinned black women, are treated wrong by everybody. And if you're afraid to confront that because it makes you feel some kind of way, you're no better than the white people. <laughs> Don't have time for light-skinned tears or white-skinned tears. You, got, like, you just got to... You got to understand, you, and that's something I wish we as Black people did more of. And a lot of Black people have said this: is like, why, why are we still here for light-skinned people who are refusing to call out colorism? But the second something happens to them, then it's an affront to them personally. It's I'm baffled. Tell me a little bit, as you mentioned it quickly, uh, the building leadership among communities of color, uh, the Black organization. Tell me a little bit about. What your, what your thought process and how you went about putting this organization together. Tell me a little bit about, about Black. I went out with a lot of different people. I was in a lot of different student groups, both, mm-hmm. you know, Black and Brown. And one of them was Umasi Mecha. So I was in Mecha for probably two and a half years. One of the things that they did was Aketsa, which is the summer program for Chicano youth. So this idea, like, we're brown, we're proud. And the best part of the program, in my opinion, was it's like, okay, we're not here to impart knowledge upon you, but rather to bring the knowledge out of you because you know your experience. You know who you are. I thought that was beautiful. And I had volunteered with the program. I did a poetry workshop. I was like, you know what? I want a black version of this. But because there's so few black people here, I think it has to be a little bit bigger. Like it has to have this other concerted effort where on the, on the one end, it's us even building a black networking community here. So it's not just pockets of black folks, but rather us interconnected. And then because we're interconnected, because we're all together, that's how the summer program will succeed. And so that's really where Black came from. And then I made my cute little my cute little name, my cute little I can't even remember what it's called, anagram? I don't even know. But mm-hmm. and everyone's like, oh, but it's like communities of color. Because of course like there's a debate, it's like are black people people of color and pe- and when a lot of black radicals are like, no, we're not anymore. Like we're not. We're black people. Our experience is that of black people. But I mean 
Black's the name. We're going to have to deal with it. <laughs> it is what it is. <laughs> it is what it is for now, but of course, you know, it might have to change as things do. Yeah. I spent a winter break just sitting, looking for literally every black faculty member I could. I went to each page. I was like, is this like a black person? Like, you might be black. Join us. Just contacting people, reaching out, trying to find a home between CISC and arts and science. And so it was just like a lot of just grinding and working and working and like, does so-and-so want to do this? Does so-and-so want to do this? Of course, it's a lot of fucking work. And there were some people who who they would like show up for the pageantry. Again, they're there for the pageantry, but not for for the grind of like, okay, we need to find out how to use this financing. We need to do this, this, and this. We need to go and do this. And so it was, you know, a lot of work. I was very glad in the end. So this year it was finally like a functioning team of people who were committed. We had the resources. We also had some white guilt money, AA, which was great to fund people's stipends to do this work. Because I had honestly never been paid for this work either. And it's a lot of work. It's a lot of labor. So finally, this year, had a good, solid team, had a nice space. It wasn't just me, like, fielding meetings between all my classes. And I think we're good to go. And it's in my scholarship program now. So it's housed in Miramonte's Arts and Science program, which I think is a good place for it. You talked about the things you were doing while you were, t- were trying to earn your degree, and you're also writing. And if you're not a writing major, again, you're doing this your way. How did you find the time to find your way into those creative spaces? So I've been writing poems and things like that since I was in middle school, easily, like for a very long time. And then I had started sharing poems in, in small little groups in middle school. And then, of course, it got a little bit big. Like, people started to come to the library because mm-hmm. like, it was cold outside, whatever. But we were also sharing poems. And it was something I had always done, always. And so it was just in college that there are more spaces for poetry. And I had heard of the open mic at Innisfree. And I went a couple of times. And, of course, the open mic at Innisfree is a very interesting space. It's navigating a lot of, again, whiteness, this Mm-hmm. this white artistic space, and they know it, and people have been trying to change it. I know Tolu, who went to see you, she was coordinator of the open mic for a really long time, and she was the only black space person in that space I've seen regularly. And when she left, I kind of was like, oh, I don't know if I can do this anymore. And that was probably my sophomore year. But like every other Tuesday of my freshman year, I would go with a group of friends, and Tolu would be and seeing, and I was like, oh, okay. Like, this is this is where I can practice my stuff. This is where I can share what I've been working on. And so it's just something I do, like naturally. I'm just gonna write I'm gonna write some crappy poems and <laughs> and then I'll continue whatever real people work I have to do. That just like that just kept on going. Like looking for those spaces, I feel like it's not even looking a lot of the time in college towns. There's always someone who's writing or reading poetry, who's creating something. And it it just shook out the way it did. I honestly don't know. You're like how like what was this? Was this a concerted effort? I was like, nah, I've always been writing poems. It's fine. There's two two projects I want to ask, but one about the, the display outside of New Orleans. Did you, was, it, was that last year? I um, think it was last year. Yeah. How did that come about? And were you were you happy with with the results? And, it, and there was a, a a word I read called artivism. So the initial idea was actually one that was we ha- I had like forever ago with another group of people, people who we wanted to fight prison labor on campus years ago. That was also something I was like, this is unacceptable. 
in that group, I was like, you know what, we should have these silhouettes. We should have people. And then a bunch of other people, like, yeah, and we can put them in orange jumps. And so this was for a different cause initially, and it just never panned out. Because it, it's, it's hard to be a student and get good grades <laughs> and do this kind of, and those people, like, slowly it fizzled out. I was, and then I was like, you know, I'm about to go to Columbia. I just can't keep, I can't always be everything to everyone. And, but it was an idea that stuck in my head. I was like, I need to keep this idea. This is a good idea. And then as things were escalating with people scrambling to atone for a hundred and plus years of racism, it was like, okay, this is the moment. And so I was in, I still was in like radical BIPOC with and Femmes. This is something that also started up. It was a lot of black and brown people. All of us, like most of us, you know, Femmes, women and Femmes. And I was like, this, we need to do this idea. And people just, some people just didn't see it. They were like, oh, I think that's a lot of work. I don't understand what that would happen. But there was one person I had like just met who had just become friends, Alejandra Abed, who does really amazing work. And as I was describing the idea to her, I'm like, it's the absence of people. Like we need to have these black silhouettes to show that people are missing. And I just remember seeing her light up and she's like, I could do this. And so like a lot of the coordinating and idea um, came from my side where it's like, okay, this is the idea. This is how we want it to come off. This is how we want people to like see us. And then the true artistry of it, that's like the physical shapes that you saw were all Alejandra. Like, did I help break them? Sure. But she was the one who designed these figures and made them look so realistic. And so it was definitely a, a very solid partnership. I'm forever grateful to Alejandra. She does amazing work. And it was because that resonated with her, this idea of absence, this, these missing people. And I think that's how it came about. It was really a, and truly a collaboration between the two of us and then other folks who came along for the ride and women, BIPOC women, and Femmes and a couple in the union. And it was just really a perfect partnership between the two of us. Resilience, resistance, and joy. Did that come out during the same time, the, the collection of poems? So that was a different effort with another BIPOC friend of mine, of course, uh, Kamala, mm -hmm. who I met at one of the BIPOC open mics that we were setting mm -hmm. up. And so she was like, oh, I know how to make zines. And I was like, what? Really? That would be great. And so that came around the similar time, yeah. And I think we finally published it, had it out probably in December. Now, something you wrote, justice is never picturesque as you'd like it. And that's kind of been the theme of this whole conversation, I believe, is that the change people are talking about, they think it's going to be cute, come by, kumbaya-ish and simple. But that, the kind of change you're talking about, the kind of change we're talking about here, is not that kind of change. It's more than cosmetic. I think that's right. I'm, I'm trying to think of what, what poem was that? Well, because there's another poem where I revisit that, and I remember saying, like, am I not like justice, um, inconvenient, yeah. and how I need to be loved? First of all, I love the, the fact that you have these wonderful long titles. Because a lot of poets don't do that. These like you know, one or two words and then they go into the poem. You have this amazing title. People pretend all ancestors are sacred. There are faces in the photos of lynch mobs and conquistadors um, didn't come in peace. And the, 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 the line I read to you were the last three lines of that particular piece, which says, you know, justice is never picturesque as you'd like it. I found myself saying, yes. Change is not easy, it's not pretty, it's hard, it's work, it's commitment, it's all of those things. I mean, thank you, thank you. I forget, <laughs> this is a poem I feel like I never read to people, I, and I think it's a good poem, I like it. Because I think people also expect that there will be a forgiveness, and I just, I think 
that people shouldn't. And I think especially expect forgiveness from those who have been subjugated, from those who have been forcibly disenfranchised. And so a lot of people are like, oh, I'm sorry, will you forgive me now? And I really don't think people have to. I don't think you have to. And I think people are like, oh, you turn the other cheek. You should. I was like, no, I can move forward and not forgive you. I think the black community can move forward and not forgive you. People can remember. It just depends on if they're going to keep the wound or not. And of course, I think there's a, there's a reason there's scar tissue between the black community and a lot of other communities globally. Because again, I don't think, I just like when people think of blackness and they only think of the United States when it's just like, no. Like, there's a reason some of the biggest Black Lives Matter rallies, some of the ones that I think were really particularly important, were in places like Australia, where you see a very concerted genocide against mm-hmm. Aboriginal people, who are what? Black people. And so I don't think people should be forgiving, if I'm honest. A lot of people get mad, they're like, you're just bitter. But I'm like, no. If anything, like, bitterness makes the best coffee. It makes the best tea. That's, and that's the reality of it. If you're forcing forgiveness upon a people, then you didn't even give a shit about us in the beginning. You just wanted to feel better about yourself. And so I think in that poem, like I'm rereading the poem, like, oh, yes, what a great bit. What a banger. (laughs) 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 You know, I I know at that moment when I'm in that moment that there's something talking to me and I sit down as quickly as I can. But there are times when someone has to remind me of what I said. I also have moments where, like, that's when like, oh, this is great. And I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. What are you referencing? <laughs> no, I wrote it, but you're going to kind of give me some time to process. And perhaps that the way they took it may not have been the way you meant it. And that's, that's a risk you always run with, like, with creating anything. Is that, and that's the hardest part to accept as someone who creates anything, like an academic paper to poetry to whatever, to painting is that once it's out in the world, you will never always be there to accompany it and explain it. And so you've got to do your best, if that's what you're interested in doing, to make mm-hmm. sure it's self-explanatory. Would it be an insult to say when I read your pieces, I think about people like Nikki Giovanni or The Last Poets and Sonia Sanchez and folks like that, and just your approach. There are things that are, that are reminiscent reminiscent to me of, of that era? I, I think everyone wants to be in a different universe. Well, I think people simultaneously want to be in a different universe and special while simultaneously having like the, compar- the comparable artistry of some of the big names. And I don't think it's that. I think they, the reason why they got popular is because they are writing this raw imagery of what it was and is to be black, brown women in America. So I don't think it's wrong. I mean, mm-hmm. Clearly, I think I'm cooler, but I'm kidding. (laughs) (laughs) I often am am curious as to what writers go through as they do that. And you're right. You're aware of the other stuff. It's nice to be compared, but you're really not doing that. You're really doing something that's uniquely you. This is why so many of my bios, so I just did a poetry gig yesterday. So many of my bios are, is Gwendolyn a poet debatable? I don't know. I think there's this aesthetic of the poet, of the creative, that's so detrimental, especially in black and brown circles, especially in this moment where it's Mm -hmm. like, oh, yes, I'm very whimsical and I'm talking about my oppression, but in a way that's pretty, in a way that people can adorn, or like I'm cranking out basically struggle porn poems for people. And it's, you know, these white audiences for basically um, like performing these four white audiences. I was like, no, that's not... 
what my poetry is here for. That's not what I'm here for. And so even when people are like, oh, you're a poet because blah, 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 you look like it. I'm like, what are you saying to me? What you're saying to me is that in this moment, it is very fashionable to get into black and brown authors, to, to read struggle and oppression and then try to live vicariously through them. And I just mean, what is that? What, what, is, like, what are you producing from that? I don't think it's worthwhile if I'm honest. And so I'm a person that's like, do I, do I say I'm a poet? Usually no. I'm just, this is something I've done forever. I've written for forever, for most of my life. And so it's just a part of how I process the world I'm in. And I think there's a lot of people, some of the best poems I've read are people who are just processing. And so one of my favorite poets, scandalous, I'm like, oh no, people are going to roast me because it's not, you know, the black revolutionary poet, but one of my favorite poets is this guy named Miguel Hernandez, and he was writing in the Spanish Civil War. And his book, like, I Have Lots of Heart, the, the title poem, it's, it's this guy who, he was a farmer, he wasn't educated, he's writing for the people. He's not trying to make all these abstract connections and trying to reference Greek mythology. He's like, no, I'm sad. This might be the end for me. And I and even though, like, I have this, these thoughts of death, like I have suicidal ideation, I persist anyway because I have lots of heart. I have the most heart of any man. And because of that, that is why I suffer, because I have lots of heart, because I have lots of feeling. And I think poems like that that are just raw, produced by people who aren't caught up in the airs of being an artist, the airs of being a poetry, because it's super, it's an elitist pursuit in a lot of ways too. It really is. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's where some of the best stuff comes from. It's from people like that who are like, no, I live the reality of having no money and knowing that I'm not even trying to sell this poem to you. I'm not trying to sell myself to you. This is who I am. This is my reality. Two more questions. So next one, tell me a little bit about your latest project um, uh, that, that's coming out. I guess, has it come out yet or is it, is it about to come out? Um, it will come out in September, September 30th, but it, you can okay. pre-order it. Hey. Yes, this is the time for the shameless plug, and I'm okay with that. So tell me about the Bru- Abruxas Manifesto. Abruxas Manifesto is my first full-length collection. Hey, published by Really Serious Lit. Hey, really cute indie <laughs> pub. And so the poems in that book range from being written when I was, like, 18. So I think even Abruxas Manifesto, that initial title, was something that I came up with when I was 18. So, I, so Bruxism, for those who don't know, if you don't know, it's when you grind your teeth. It's mm-hmm. teeth grinding. Um, and when I was 17, I had to get a root canal because I had just been grinding and grinding. I just had clenched my jaws uh, and just press on this filling that I got in Georgia years ago. And I just, I don't know if you've ever needed a root canal, but there's no pain like needing a root canal. There's no pain like tooth pain. And I just remember <laughs> like a week for like two weeks just being in this agonizing pain. And the doctor is like, you know, we'll get you a mouth guard. I think a lot of this has to do with like, this is how you're processing stress right now. You're, just, you're grinding. That's where that title came. Like, it came from a, a while ago. And so now I'm, I'm about to be 23 in August. Hey. But a lot of these poems were written between when I was 18 to 22. And so there's this whole showing of poems that are written at the very beginning of, like, my non-high school years to the end. Um, like, some very recently. So both the initial beginning poem and the last poem are things written very recently. And there are poems in there that I would perform when I was 18, 19. So, so like my love poem to myself, to my college self, how to get it out there before, so I can make better, <laughs> more interesting things. 
Let me ask my last question. You're 60, 65, 70. You're sitting down looking back. What is Gwendolyn Robicki's legacy? Well, I do, I do, in the end, want to be a professor. So I'll be starting an MA but reapplying to PhDs in the fall. 60, 75-year-old Gwen, I want people to be hyper-critical and benevolent. I want people to be able to balance contradiction because that's what living is. And, of course, like I was born into a position where that's what I had to do. A lot of black and brown people are born into positions where we're constantly in these awkward balancing acts. But it's not a balance of, like, how palatable am I? No. It's a balance of how much do I discover myself each day and how much do I care for myself in that discovery. And that's what I want the legacy to be. I want people to be learning about themselves in the knowledge they pursue. And that might not be in the academy. I want to find a way to honestly dismantle the academy as it. Like, I just don't think it's productive. I want people to feel confident enough to explore, to pursue majors like I did, to learn because they want to learn and not be connected to them as people and their development as people. Because it's one thing to be the best computer programmer, the best mathematician, the best engineer, the best sociologist, the best whatever. It's a very different thing to be learned in your field and in yourself and then position yourself in that field. And so I'm working on it. I want to be a professor. I want to also tear down the academy. But I want people to be excited enough and bold enough to step out and into themselves and do that through pursuing knowledge about different peoples too. So not just you learn about yourself and then you're done, but you learn about yourself in relation to others and in relation to your field, and you're the better for it. And that's what I want to be. I want to be an educator who is also still down to be educated because just because I'm older doesn't mean I know everything. That's not how the world works. Um, (laughs) And I think that's what I really want. I want people to be bold. And bold looks different for everybody. I don't expect everyone to be super loud or alcohol. I want people just to be bold enough to say, hey, I'm curious about this, or I know enough that I know I'm worth certain opportunities. I should be able to have a voice in this space. I should make my own space. And that's what I want to encourage. I want to be a professor or a person wherever I end up in education. That's there. to Like if someone's doing something, I'm like, hey, that's you. That's your project. But I'm here for the assist if you need me. So I think that's what I want my legacy to be, is continuing and building up that kind of work. And so it is. Thank you for listening to Black and Gold on Anchor. Black and Gold is a production of the Black and Gold Project, Our Legacy. You can reach us on our Facebook site, or if you'd like to be involved, maybe in a future conversation, reach out to us at boulderblackandgold at gmail.com. Thank you again for listening. Remember, we are all truly golden. I love you.